All right, one book down, 65 to go. <laughs> uh, we're excited. I hope you are uh, continue with, the, with us on the journey of going through the entire Bible in the next year or so. We're going to go through all 66 books. And um, how many are still uh, doing their reading faithfully? Good, good. Listen, if you've gotten behind, you might have the app or you might have the little uh, card that you uh, fill out. If you've gotten behind, let me just encourage you, don't try to catch up. You'll get frustrated. You'll quit. Just start, where, start today. Start with wherever you're at. Pick up uh, maybe next year as you come back through if you need to. But uh, right now we should be wrapping up the book of Genesis. And there's about three or four chapters a day. Hopefully you've got the app or the card and you're keeping track of that. And uh, if you have the app, I would encourage you to start with uh, September 10th. Uh, you can change the, the beginning date, and therefore you'll know every day where everybody else is on track. And so let me just encourage you on the journey. Keep it, keep it up. All right, we're going to unpack a little bit about uh, Abraham uh, this morning, a little bit about his life and how it relates to us, how we can apply it to our lives. And I want to just, again, come to, to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you, Father, for just the, the revelation it is to us and how it changes and transforms us. And how you speak to us through it. And so, Father, I pray this morning you'd speak to our hearts. Help us, Father, to not just understand this book in our head, but to apply it in our hearts. Help us, Father, to grow in, in Christ and, 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 and develop the character in all our works and in all of our ways that reflect the love and light of Jesus Christ. And so, this morning, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, fill us with your spirit, and cause us, Father, to uh, draw nearer to you, to know you more as we seek to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are a few things, uh, very few things in life that will motivate us more uh, than fear. And when, you talk, when we talk about Abraham, we're talking about a man who, at the very beginning, struggled desperately with fear and panic. And uh, fear is one of those funny things. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night a few months ago with what I would call uh, a panic attack or an anxiety attack. And maybe some of you have had some of those. And I don't usually get those very often. Um, Hardly ever, but on this particular night, I suddenly woke up about 2 in the morning. And I, I kind of looked at the ceiling, and my heart was pounding, my eyes were wide open, and, and I began to kind of break out in a cold sweat. And I thought, what's going on? Uh, basically, uh, I, I, I heard not, not an audible voice, but I believe as I look back now, it was a spiritual attack. Uh, I believe the enemy was trying to, to shake me, to rattle me, and he began with a question that kept ringing in my head. And it was a weird question. What if everyone, this question was in my head, what if everyone just kind of stopped coming to Foothills? What if suddenly you're out of work? What if you don't have a job? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Uh, you're an old pastor. Nobody wants an old pastor. What's going to happen? And uh, I, I, you know, I just kind of sat there and, and, or laid there and just thought about that for the longest time. Usually that kind of thing doesn't bother me, but on this particular night, uh, I, I was just filled with uh, a very real emotion called fear and panic. And that voice kept going. What if uh, the giving stops? What if the funds dry up? What if, what if, how are you going to pay the mortgage? How are you going to pay for the staff? How are you going to pay for the ministry? Uh, what staff, what missionaries might you have to, to cut if, if the funds suddenly dry up? And I'm never worried about that. God has always provided for our church. And yet, this particular night, I was kind of in a panic. And... Uh, you know, I thought, <laughs> why, why am I thinking about this stuff? And it took about an hour 
uh, of me just sitting there and, and, and just my heart racing and, and me thinking about this, uh, these kind of things. And, and I, the voice said, kept saying things like, you know, what are you qualified to do? What else are you going to do? And all suddenly I pictured myself at Costco at the, at the exit door with a, a yellow highlighter and, and, and marking people's receipts as they went out. And I thought, I could do that. I, I think I can do that. <laughs> now, I don't know why those questions were bothering me. They never bothered me before. And uh, those, those were very fearful emotions. I couldn't shake it. Maybe it was the fact that I had a birthday. <laughs> I turned the big 6-0, and that's one birthday I didn't want to celebrate. That really rocked my world when I turned the big 6-0. Uh, maybe it was a major move that we made in our living uh, situation. Maybe it was the fact that I had just lost one of my closest friends. Maybe it was too many anchovies on my pizza the night before. I don't know what it was. But it was fear, and it was very real. And after about an hour of staring at the ceiling, I finally uh, prayed. I don't know why it took me an hour, but again, I began to pray. God, help me. And I asked for his uh, peace and his provision and his protection and his presence in a powerful way. And I began to rebuke the enemy. Uh, I rebuked Satan and all his works and ways by the power and blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. And I repeated that several times. And I remember that verse in, in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing. It says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so I began to let those requests be made known to God. And the promise was that the peace of God would uh, walk guard duty around your hearts and minds. And I began to thank God for his provision. I began to thank God for all that he's done. I, I thanked God for the, the church family, the generosity and the faithfulness of, of those in, in, here at Foothills. And, and then God reminded me of a verse and it was just as loud, just as clear, just as audible as the voice of the enemy. And God basically reminded me of Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so I, I rested in that. I closed my eyes. I rolled over. I fell asleep. And I woke up the next morning totally refreshed. Um, why is it that fear sometimes just grabs us by the throat, shakes us? What is it that keeps you up at night? <laughs> What is it that you sometimes get anxious about? Abraham struggled deeply with fear and panic and anxiety. And I want to take a look at that a little bit this morning. Um, there are a few things in life, again, that will motivate us more and stir us up uh, than fear. Fear of loss, fear of pain, fear of uh, failure, uh, fear of death. What is it that you tend to get panicked about? Uh, fear is an all-consuming emotion. And uh, the Bible tells us that the opposite of Fear is faith. Why is that? Because basically fear is the very thing that will keep us from fully trusting, fully relying upon, fully committing ourselves and surrendering to God. And fear is what we discover here in Genesis chapter 12. It rears its ugly head basically in the very first person in the Bible who's ever called the friend of God, Abraham. Interesting. Adam was not called the friend of God, Seth, Noah. No one up to this point has been called the friend of God except for Abraham. James chapter 2 tells us Abraham was called the friend of God. Why? What made him so special? I read something the other day that asked an interesting question. Are your friends on Facebook really actually your friends? According to an appeals court in Florida just this last week, legally, Facebook friends are not necessarily your friends. The article stated how the court dove into this question because of a judge who may have been required to recuse herself from a case because an attorney involved in that case were friends with a judge on Facebook. However, 
The court ruled that a recuse was not necessary because it says Facebook data mining and algorithms lead people into accepting friend requests from people they hardly know or who they are only acquainted with in professional circles. And so basically what's happened today is people have, at least on Facebook, diluted what, what friendship is really all about. And they include anyone and everyone and even near strangers they consider to be friends. And yet Proverbs 18.24 defines a true godly friend as one who sticks closer than a brother. I don't think probably most of the four or five or 600 friends I have on Facebook would stick closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, 17 adds that a friend is one who loves you at all times. And again, I, I look at all the names and it's great to have all these people on Facebook, but I doubt that most of them would love me at all times. Abraham was called the friend of God. Why is that? In order to be the friend of God, what Abraham had to do, and we, we, we discover this in the book of Genesis, is he had to leap over and hurdle, off, hurdle over some major obstacles and barriers of fear in order to become a friend of God. And so what we learn, uh, and what do we learn uh, from the life and the times of Abraham and what it means to overcome fear? What does it mean to be a friend of God? And I want more than anything in my life to cultivate and nurture that intimate, that, 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 deep friendship with God. Why? Because there's nothing more important in all of life than to know God. I want to know him more. I hope you do too. And one of the ways we do that is we go through his word and we discover how he speaks to us about who he is and the plan and purpose he has for us. We were designed, we were created, we uh, were hardwired in our very DNA to have a relationship with God, to know him, to be friends with him, to be in that kind of relationship with him. So what does that look like? Well, let's take a look at the book of Abraham or actually the book of Genesis, and look at the life of Abraham. There's no book of Abraham, at least not, not, not that I know of. Uh, in his letter to the Galatians, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul uh, writes these words. He says, consider Abraham. Consider Abraham. Think about him, basically. He points to the fact that Abraham is one of the greatest Old Testament examples for every New Testament Christian. Consider Abraham. Among all the other Old Testament greats, I mean Abraham, was the one who emerges as the one who really wanted to know and understand and do God's will. As a result of that, he was called the friend of God. And as a result also, God made an unconditional promise to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. We saw that a little bit in the video just a minute ago. God promised Abraham two uh, th awesome things here in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 that make up what we call the Again, the Abrahamic covenant. Actually, three things. God promised Abraham, first of all, a land. Secondly, a seed. And thirdly, a blessing. Now, the land would be the land of Canaan. That would later become the, the land of Israel. Uh, the, the seed refers to the nation of Israel. That would come from the descendants, the line of Abraham. And then finally, the blessing would be that through the line of Abraham, every single family, every person, that's you and me, down throughout history, would be blessed. What does that look like? Well, let's take a look here in our passage. You see, it would be through Abraham that the nation of Israel would be formed, and then basically through that uh, nation, uh, God would reveal himself, not only as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also the one true and living God to the whole world. And ultimately, through Abraham's line of descendants would come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would arrive on the scene some 2,000 years later. 
Think about that. Abraham was about 2000 BC. About as much time has passed between the time of Christ and today as the time of Abraham and when the Messiah comes on the scene. Interesting. It would be through Abraham, then Israel, and then through the Messiah that the whole world would come to know that there really is a loving God who has reached out to sinful mankind and provided a way for them to know him and to become his friend. And so what we call the Abrahamic covenant starts here in Genesis chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 3, and it's really a divine outline. It's basically a, a blueprint for the rest of redemptive history that would follow. It all begins here. At Genesis 12, verse 1, follow with me. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, who later become Abraham, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham arrives on the scene. He comes to Canaan along with his family, along with his livestock, and a huge caravan of more than 300 servants. Abraham obeyed God. And he left behind the, the secure environment of his homeland in order to follow and do the will of God. And once Abraham actually arrived in the land, God reaffirmed that covenant in verse 7. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. Now, how did Abraham respond? He responded by building two uh, huge uh, uh, altars to the Lord. But what happens next? Right after he praises and worships God, God basically puts Abraham through a major test. It starts right off here with a test. You see, we know that God is in the life-changing business. God's in the transformation business. We are all under construction, every single one of us. We're all under new management. We're all growing, which means that God is always teaching us. God is always training us, whether we realize it or not. But unlike in school, and we shared this before, where you basically study the lesson first and then comes the test, God does it the other way around. First of all, he puts you through a test. And if you, whether you pass it or not, then comes the lesson. But what we discover here is a direct result of his fear. Because Abraham panics, basically he flunks and fails miserably that very first test that God puts him through. What was the test? Well, God sets up the test as a famine. When Abraham first arrives in Canaan, verse 10 abruptly tells us there was a famine in the land. Now, imagine what Abraham must have been thinking. I came all this way, a thousand miles across a burning desert for this. I thought it was, this was supposed to be the land of blessing. This was supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, I show up at a wasteland. The land was not a pretty place at that time. In fact, the land probably looked a lot like Baker. You ever been to Baker? It is the, uh, it's the gateway to Death Valley. Wow, beautiful, downtown Baker. I think Canaan sort of looked like Baker, Bakersfield, and Barstow, all rolled up into one. And Abraham's thinking, I didn't sign up for this. Now, this famine was a brand new experience for Abraham. As, uh, as far as we know, he never faced a famine before. Where he came from, Ur of the Chaldees, was on the other side of the Fertile Crescent. and It was a place of a land of abundance, a, a land of prosperity. He had never faced a famine before. Imagine the complaining, the bickering among all the hundreds that were with him. Hey, Abe, what are we doing out here? 
We obeyed God for what? We didn't sign up for this either. What reason? Why? So that we could come out here and, and starve to death in Baker? <laughs> After caravanning all the way across this burning desert, Abraham now faces the dangerous possibility of being totally wiped out. Every man, woman, and child wiped off the face of the earth because of this famine. It was a severe famine. And he was confronted with the harsh reality of losing his own life. What would he do? What would you do? What would you do in a situation like that? Verse 10 tells us that he basically had an anxiety attack. <laughs> he panicked. It says Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. He took off, he panicked, he packed up his bags, and he headed south. Now notice he didn't pray about it. He didn't consult God about it. He just panics, packs up, and progresses south. You know, whenever we fear that our needs are need not being met, usually we uh, maybe panic under pressure, even more so when we're pushed or we're pressured by others. And then we end up doing something that we will later regret. Have you ever done that? I have, many times. John Ordberg offers an example. How often do we see this scene? One man feels he's been cut off by another motorist on the freeway. He pulls up alongside the perpetrator and starts yelling, what kind of idiot are you? What were you thinking? Were you trying to kill me, you moron? How does the other person respond? I guarantee he won't say, thank you. A point well taken. You've touched me deeply. I'm going to change. And I want to thank you for taking the time to offer me that hand gesture as well. That's not the typical response that we get. Instead, when we face with, with fear and, and, and pressure, we usually do something we will later regret. Under pressure, filled with, with fear, Abraham panics, and he packs it up, and he heads south, and he miserably fails and flunks God's first test in his life. I have found, and maybe you have too, that in the heat of the moment, uh, one of the most difficult things to do is just basically cool off and wait. Just wait. Wait and trust God to take care of it. God will work it out. One of the most difficult things is for us just to take a deep breath and just wait upon the Lord. It's at those very times that we cool down and wait that God blesses us. Bob Record has written a book called Forged by Fire, and he points this out. He says, in, in smelting and forging metal, the cooling process, the cooling process is as important as the heating. In fact, they've discovered that changes occur in the metal itself during the cool-down period. If the cool-down period is too fast, it causes microscop microscopic cracks in the metal and will ne inevitably lead to fatigue and ultimately to disaster. And so to be sure that the cooling process aids in strengthening the metal, it is allowed to cool slowly in the air until it reaches room temperature. It is in the waiting, in the waiting, that is essential to ensure the metal's stru uh, structural uniform strength in order to accomplish its end use. You know, when heated up, <laughs> when we're under pressure, we have to go through a cool-down period. It's at those very times when we most are tempted to hurry up and act quickly that the great refiner wants us just to wait, to trust him, to rest in him, to wait on him. And he wants to build into our lives the kind of qualities that will fit into our effectiveness as far as the ultimate use that he has in mind for each and every one of us. And so it is in the waiting that becomes an inescapable segment in the process of our spiritual growth. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, God says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. 
I will help you. I'm, I'm sorry, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Wait upon the Lord. It is so critical that you and I understand that God is just as interested in the process of basically what we're going through as he is in the product of what we're to become. In the heat of the moment, Abraham here takes the immediate action and he failed to consult the one who led him to Canaan in the first place. And so it was totally a man-centered decision. How many of our decisions are man-centered? Most of them, I would guess. He heads down to Egypt, a land noted for fertility and abundance, and now going down to Egypt, uh, he is thinking all of his needs are going to be met. Again, he doesn't pray about it. He doesn't consult God. Now, going down to Egypt was not necessarily a bad thing. It was actually the logical thing to do, both geographically and economically. In fact, on several occasions, Egypt becomes a place of uh, basically survival and refuge for God's people. You might remember in Egypt, uh, that's where Joseph, just a few years later, would become a, uh, a leader and provide food for his brothers and his aged father uh, during a famine there at that time as well. Centuries later, uh, after Herod tried to snuff out the life of Jesus, where did Mary and Joseph go? They headed down to Egypt, a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of security. And so going down to Egypt wasn't necessarily a bad thing. The, the central issue, the main problem here, was Abraham was taking matters into his own hands. He was going down without consulting God. It was a man-centered decision. Again, many of us tend to make those kind of decisions. So what were some creative alternatives? You know, I, if Abraham had looked to God for specific instructions, it's possible that God would have led him down to Egypt anyway, but if he had searched out the Lord, he would give, have given him maybe divine, a divine strategy to basically deal with the problems that he would face down there. But I'm convinced it's also possible that God would have provided for Abraham some creative, miraculous alternatives. When you think about it, he did that a lot for his own people. For example, in future years, we'll discover that God provided water out of solid rock. He provided manna coming down from heaven. He provided quail that came in from the sea. He filled up barrels of meal that would never run out. Over and over and over again, God provided for his people in miraculous ways. But tragically, Abraham didn't give God the chance to do that, to prove his provisions miraculously in his life. He goes on and does things on his own. Why? Because of fear because of panic. He acted on his own. We do the same thing. We jump from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> There's a verse in Proverbs that says, there is a way that seems right to a man. It seems right. It's logical. It seems like the best way to go. But the end thereof is the way of death. God wants us to wait on him. Don't run ahead. Don't panic. Don't jump from the frying pan into the fire because of fear. And so it turned into, uh, what turned Basically, what happened after this, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 11, uh, Abraham uh, basically comes up with an unwise plan. In fact, as soon as Abraham arrives in Egypt, he's faced with another uh, panic, basically uh, a fear, and he basically sacrifices his wife in the process. It tells us that his wife, Sarah, was very beautiful. She was very attractive, uh, even as a middle-aged 65-year-old princess. She was drop-dead gorgeous, and he knew it. Abraham soon realized that her presence, though, could be very dangerous for him. In fact, God, he had good reason to be afraid. History tells us that Egyptian men were very impressed, were very drawn to Semitic women. Uh, it was uh, typical in those days, if a man wanted a, a woman, he might murder her husband to do just that. And so Abraham was thinking, 
you know, I have a beautiful wife. I could be toast for someone else's breakfast. And so he comes up with a plan. It's a man-made plan. Again, he panics, verse 11. And it came about when he came near to Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, who would later become Sarah, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, what's Abraham thinking? He's basically rationalizing to save his own skin. Now, Pharaoh was an old playboy. This guy basically had scouts on the lookout throughout the kingdom for beautiful women to add to his harem. And they actually spotted Sarah's presence rather quickly there in Egypt. History records that Egyptian women uh, were renowned, uh, notorious for their rather unattractive features. Now, that's what the historians have said. In fact, one historian back then at the time said that their looks had a tendency to fade early. Now, I don't know if that's because of the desert climate, being that it may have been a little bit, I don't know. We don't know. But verse 15 says, Pharaoh wasted no time. Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Uh, Sarah had been officially inducted into his harem. And uh, what does Abraham get out of the deal? Verse 16, therefore he, that is Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. He gets the goods, but he loses his love. Uh, what was he thinking? In order to save his own scalp, he's willing to give up and sacrifice his own wife. Now, there might be some men that would do that, but Abraham really did love Sarah. Let's not forget something here. Abraham is kind of new to this whole uh, trusting God thing. He's immature in his faith. He's just beginning his walk with God. He's still learning. And so we're cutting him a little bit of slack here, but fear is getting the best of him. He hasn't yet learned to totally trust and cling to and rely upon God. Abraham is operating under fear and panic. And just like we do sometimes, he blows it, and he blows it big time. But then what God does is graciously step in and rescue him. And once again, God's patience and faithfulness is demonstrated here. Notice that in, the, in spite of the fact that it was Abraham who blew it, what does God do? God judges and puts a plague on Pharaoh. Verse 17, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You know, God's continued patience and faithfulness in our lives is amazing. I'm always uh, just amazed that God continues to bail me out time and time and time again uh, all throughout my life. We get ourselves into trouble. Uh, we suffer the consequences of it, but then God comes along and he redeems us. He comes along and rescues us out of that pit of despair and defeat. He is not only in the life-changing business, uh, God is in the restoration business as well. Can you think of a time in your life where God somehow took something bad, maybe even something tragic in your life, and turned it around? Maybe he's still turning certain things around in your life for good. God has a way of doing that. I'm reminded of the 50-20 principle, and it was pointed out in the video, Genesis 50-20. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, he later again becomes a major uh, player there in, in Egypt. He confronts his brothers who sold him into slavery as a young boy. And he basically says to them, listen, you guys meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's 50-20, Genesis 50-20, the 50-20 principle. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. In other words, God has a wonderful way of taking a bad situation 
even a tragedy, and turning it around in your life. There's a gentleman in our church who has shared uh, with me on, a, on numerous occasions. He, he lost his job. He had to file bankruptcy. What did God do in that period of time? Uh, he opened the doors of, of, of new, a new career and went a new direction, and God provided for him in a powerful way, in a wonderful way. Basically, he took a hard and difficult and painful situation and turned it around. Many years ago, we lost a, a young person in our youth group, Brian Graper, who tragically uh, drowned. Uh, he uh, died here. Uh, it's been almost uh, 20 years uh, over at Tribuco Hills uh, Swimming Pool. And as tragic and as difficult and as heartbreaking as that was, there were dozens, maybe even hundreds, but they say at least dozens as we looked at it, of kids who came to Christ because of his life and because of what happened. God sometimes allows what he hates. We hate that kind of stuff. God does too. He allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And who does he love? He loves you. He loves me. And oftentimes he redeems even the bad decisions that we've made. He turns them around. I love uh, Romans uh, 8.28, a familiar passage. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, God will often allow what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And we see that all through the book of Genesis. That's one of the major themes of Genesis. An awesome example of that is what we find here in our story. Well, God not only uh, caused uh, Pharaoh to return Sarah back to Abraham, but what else does he get? Well, look at verse 20. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and said, they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. All that belonged to him. Basically, in other words, Abraham gets to keep all the sheep, all the oxen, all the donkeys, all the camels, all the servants. And Pharaoh gives him back Sarah and gives him an official escort back to the land where he was supposed to have stayed in the first place. Isn't it ironic that God uses pagan people <laughs> to basically get Abraham back on the right track? God will use anybody <laughs> in your life and in mine to turn us around and get us back in a right relationship with him. Abraham seems to have learned his lesson, and he learned it well. It tells us here in chapter 13, verse 1, So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, that's the desert, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. He finally called on the name of the Lord, what he should have done at the very beginning, instead of taking that detour down to Egypt. Again, remember that this is a man who is a beginner in his walk with God. He's still learning. He made mistakes. Fortunately, he learned from his mistakes. Do we learn from our mistakes? I'm still learning from some of my mistakes. Okay, by way of application, two things real quickly this morning, two takeaways from our passage. Number one, first of all, listen, tests in our Christian lives are an inescapable fact. They are inevitable. You will always face te tests and trials in your life. One series of tests after the other. Why? Because that's the only way you're going to grow. That's the only way I'm going to grow. As I mentioned before, God is in the life-changing business, which means that he's always teaching us. He's always training us. Whether we realize it or not, you're in training right now. I don't know what God is teaching you, but he's teaching you something in the circumstances, in the situation that you find yourself in. God is training you. He's teaching you. He's testing you. How are you doing? How are you doing? As I pointed out before, unlike in school where you get the lesson and the test afterwards, God gives you a test first 
and then he teaches you the lesson. So how are you doing? Just like with Abraham, God is absolutely committed to molding and shaping us into the kind of people he wants us to be. What kind of people? Nothing less than the character of Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 8, 29, he predestined us to become conformed into the image of his son. You see, nothing less than the character of Christ will do. Which means that we are called to go through much of the same kind of suffering, the same kind of struggles that Jesus faced. Expect that. Expect that. James 1-2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's tests are specifically designed to bring out the very best in you, not to cause you to fail, but He wants you to succeed with flying colors. Job recognized this kind of Examination when he declared in Job chapter 23, verse 10, but he knows the way I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come, be, I shall come forth as gold. As gold. God's tests are designed to make you into Olympic gold. How do you do that? There's only one, only one way for gold to become pure. You have to heat it up. You have to fire it up, melt it down, and what happens? All the impurities come to the surface, and what's left is pure gold. That's why God allows us to go through what we go through, the tests that we face. That's why 1 Peter 1.6 tells us, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is in the gold refining business as he restores each and every one of us into the kind of people he's called us to be. Leads us to the second major lesson this morning, the second thing, the takeaway that I want us to, to, to go from here this morning, and that is number one, or number two, God's faithfulness and patience continues no matter what the decision. God's faithfulness God's patience continues. We see that with Abraham. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't suffer the, the consequences of some bad decisions, but what God does, as I mentioned before, He redeems those decisions. He turns them around. They're never wasted. He promises never to leave us, never to forsake us, no matter what. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 8 declares, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Don't fear the situations around us. Fear God. Not in the sense of panic but in the sense of having an awesome respect and trust in the one who never leaves us, never forsakes us, has our best interests at heart, and causes us to go through all things for our good and his glory, regardless of what you're going through this morning. I don't know what it might be. I don't know what decisions you're wrestling with, but I know everybody here is. I don't know what fears that you're facing or what tests you're enduring. I don't know what you're waiting on as far as having to just trust God in that situation. But Romans 12:1 says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God, acceptable to Him, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, so that you will be good, uh, so uh, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the will of God. Have you presented your body, your soul, everything that you are to Him? Have you surrendered everything? Are you walking in the light of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for the example of Abraham. Father, what a, a man just like us, a man, Lord, that you worked with in and through in a, in a powerful way. And, and Father, because of what you did in his heart and life, Father, we are blessed today. We have come to know you because of what you have done through Abraham and through all the countless people down throughout history. Your revelation has shown us who you are that you are the one true and living God who loves us unconditionally and is committed to us. Father, we thank you for the situations we find ourselves in. Lord, every one of us is going through something. And Father, we know that you're at work. And so we pray that you would help us to wait on you, to trust you, not to run ahead like Abraham, not to make some of the mistakes he made, to avoid those kind of situations where we're tempted to act hastily in our own flesh, in our own mind, according to our own resources, and Father, help us to take all the situations and circumstances that we're facing right now, Lord, and just lay it at the foot of the cross. Lord, that you are our God and you're in control. You're sovereign. You're working all things for good. And Father, we praise you and we thank you for that. Father, I just pray that this morning we go from this place more committed to you, more uh, faithful in our obedience, more in love with who you are and what you're doing in our hearts and lives. And Father, we Pray that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart will always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray and all God's children said, amen. amen.